Number seven that I have, I, I'm not sure if you thought about these guys or not. Um, well, the Beach Boys were going to be on my list, but I assumed you were going to put them on the okay. list. I may surprise you here. I, I may not. So what you're listening to is the very famous Doobie Bounce. Which I'm doing right now. Yep. I, uh, I strongly considered putting them on my list. Okay. I, they, I did not, but they were up for consideration. I don't know if I would have owned Michael McDonald. I, I may have. Well, because he was later. So the, now he would have been the last artist where they had a hit before they had their comeback. The, the original lead singer was Tom Johnston. Right. And they had a very different sound. It was very uh, kind of a rocker. They, they were very popular with motorcycle riders. Okay. They were known in that California biker world. Very popular. Well, Johnson had like an illness, and I think that's why Michael he McDonald was, had to come in. Well, he, McDonald was brought in to kind of help sing along. And, and be a songwriter. And, and Tom, yes, Tom was having some serious health problems. And I think it's because Skunk Baxter was friends with Michael McDonald that you, he, he came back. You mean military defense consultant Skunk Baxter? One and the same. That is true, if you didn't know that. Uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter is one of the preeminent... Uh, defense missile consultants in the United States. Yeah. It has like insane clearance, uh, top secret clearance. For a civilian. Yeah, like the highest. Right. Yeah. All right, so this is this song is, is hugely successful. Uh, Doobie Brothers won a Grammy in 1979. This song goes to number one. Uh, and then Michael McDonald kind of, he leaves the Doobies and pursues a solo career, which effectively kind of ends the Doobie Brothers as a band because Tom Johnson had not come back yet at that point. So the Doobies disappear for a good seven, eight years uh, after Michael McDonald leaves the group. Did he co-write the song with Kenny Loggins? Yes, he did. Yeah. Because Kenny Loggins has a version of this. Yes, I've heard that version. Yeah. I I like this better. And that was not uncommon for those two guys to do. Yeah. Is they would co-write a song and then each would record his own version. Right. I have heard that one. I think, I, but, the, but the one that was the big hit was, I think it's the better one. So, uh, you know, Michael McDonald goes on, has his own solo career. And then all of a sudden, like I said, there was sort of this revival going on in the late 80s. And I, I, to me, that's so cool because it really opened up the back catalog for a music fan like me when you started hearing these names again. And now all of a sudden you go to the summer of 1989 uh, I'm. I just graduated from high school, and all of a sudden, there are these there are these bands out there, and they are uh, they're releasing new material. And here is one. Of, I think one of the bigger hit songs of nineteen, the summer of nineteen eighty nine. Tom Johnson's back, mm-hmm. and guess what? The Doobie Brothers sound like they did in nineteen seventy five. Right, and this does have that pre Michael McDonald Doobie Brothers sound. And this is the song I actually this is the style I actually prefer. I heard this song, I was like, oh man, this is so cool. And I knew who the Doobie Brothers were, but it, it made me go back and listen to Blackwater and China Grove. That's and, what this sounds like, yeah. And it just it's you know, because they said they were very popular with the bikers. I can I can listen to the song and imagine Bikers were like riding down the highway to a song like this. Although the Doobie Brothers did make an appearance in an episode of What's Happening. Abs- yes, they did. Where uh, Rerun got conned into recording the concert. That's right. He was jumping up and down and the tape recorder fell out of his uh, shirt. Turns out jacket. all they had was a fat kid eating popcorn <laughs> on the tape. But this, is, this song is called The Doctor.
and I, that's it goes back to the comment that I, I had made to you about doesn't matter what the era is and like you said this song very easily could have been released in 1976 mm-hmm. sure and would have been just as popular and it would have sounded like what they were releasing at the time and it, it goes to my theory that you know how sometimes bands are trying to like achieve the sound of that of that time of that year right and I think the Doobies kind of flipped the bird to that and just said we're going to make make some music that we would have made 20 years ago right and to me it sounds great it's it's Good music is good music. So they said, okay, Sean, huh? You just put out there how great it was that Aretha updated her sound and took on that 1985 kind of synthesizer, electric drum beat. We're going to show you how wrong you are. <laughs> but I, I don't know if everybody would have been able to pull it off. You know, it, it's they, they were such a major act at the time. And there was the, the line in the movie, was it the movie Romancing the Stone? Where they actually, um, Michael Douglas actually, he's he's like a, he's an adventurer, yes, and he's he's out of contact with with civilization. He's, he starts looking at in there in the scene. There's these Rolling Stone magazines, and he's like, "Oh man, the doobies broke up," because <laughs> you know he hadn't That's gotten right. the news yet because he hadn't he had been away for like ten years, right? And he's yeah. like, "Oh man," <laughs> and but that you That's know, true. I they were that. a big deal. Yeah, yeah, they sure were, and it was cool to see them come back with a with a comeback. It hit the top ten, number nine. On the Billboard 100 chart, but to me, this is like one of the soundtrack songs of the summer after I graduated from high school, and I just remember being on the radio all the time, Mm -hmm. which leads me to my next artist, Same Summer, all right? So I'm going to play the first song, and obviously, this one's going to be easy to remember, and I chose this song because this is, to me, one of my favorite slow love songs of the 70s and this is the Bee Gees How Deep Is Your Love do you even remember this when it was on the radio yeah I do okay I do this is 1977 I was just starting to All get right. into music I mean I, I mean, I do and but you know I'm just kind of beginning to listen to the radio on my own and I remember it on television as much as anything else because you would see scenes from this I'll tell you what I remember the most about this song is the Overlook Skating Ring Okay. This was the song that they would drop. You know, they would light up the disco ball. That's our local roller skating rink that we have. And the uh, the couples would go out and dance or skate to the song. Yeah. That's really what I remember about this song. And does I Overlook Skating Rink still exist? It does. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's still. All right. It's one of the few. Okay. Yeah. It does still exist. Um, so if you ever saw an episode of Modern Family where they go back to the roller skating rink and and Claire relives her her days where she worked a snack yep. bar. Yeah, that reminded me exactly of Overlook. Yeah, kind of. It had the same feel. Yeah, it's it sure did. Um, yeah, because you had the y'all had the same kind of the the tan colored roller skates, and the guys like literally spraying them. With, I don't know what, but he's spraying it with something, and before he handed it to you, so you get handed these wet roller skates. Yeah. You had to put them on, and took you about you know a couple of minutes to get unless unless you were there the week before, in which case you were you know skating around like a pro. Mm-hmm. But um, so that was the, the Bee Gees from 1977, of course, number one song in America. At that time, everything they were putting out was going to number one. And then the Bee Gees got slammed. I, I think it's fair to say that. They got, they, they, got, they got really dragged through the mud because of their success. And there was a backlash from that success. And it sort of pushed them out of the, of the recording scene for a decade literally for a decade they became top producers in the 1980s wrote you know barry gibb and his brothers uh morris and robin wrote a ton of hit songs for other artists but if they would have put their name on it and recorded it themselves it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere oh it would have failed and they were hated they were and then they were kind of this little revival coming back like i said older bands were starting to make a comeback and this is right this is at the same time the doobie brothers had come out with the doctor. Well, you know, one of the artists that I was going to mention was Donna Summer. She also had a hit song. Uh, this time, I know it's for real. That came out in 1989. So the summer of '89 had a lot of had a lot of retro artists coming back with some hit songs. Well, here come the Bee Gees. Now tell me, this doesn't sound like the late '80s.
less falsetto there. Yeah. And which is which is good. I, I do remember this. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this kind of gives them a little bit of vindication, a little validation mm -hmm. that these guys are still good songwriters. And I think this song kind of single-handedly gave them the respect that had been lost to them for, for the better part of a decade. And I think it sort of eased that, that rift between music fans and disco music, and more specifically the Bee Gees. Yeah, I I wonder about the timing, why they chose uh, to release it when they did. If they felt enough time had passed, basically 10 years, yes. a full decade had passed, where there's still enough of a name, where people remember who they are, but hopefully the the crowd that liked them back in late 70s, they've grown a little bit, you know, at, at this point. I'm in my early 20s, you know, I remember them, and I'm not as hostile towards them as what I sure. had been. And the year before... Uh, their brother Andy, their youngest brother Andy, had passed away. So I'm sure, because they were trying to work on material for his album, they were trying to launch a comeback album for him. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe some of the material that was supposed to be on his album ended up on this album. Okay. But it ended up being a, a hugely successful song that they took to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 in the summer of 1989. So a good comeback uh, for the for the Bee Gees, not that they needed it, you know they already had, you know, dozens of songs from the '60s and the '70s, and uh, I think it for them it probably just put their stamp on on elevating them to legendary status because they're able to do it yet in another decade. What did you think about it at the time when it came out? I liked it. I liked it. I liked this music that was coming out. I really liked the late '80s. Yeah, I mean, music. I I enjoyed. Like I said, it sort of opened a whole new door for me to to see what these guys were were before and not that i was like go i knew bg songs i knew doobie brothers songs but i kind of went back and was like oh yeah you know i like the doctor i'm gonna like china grove or you know just that's just mm -hmm. that that type of an example and it's sort of kind of it's sort of expanded because i was very narrow-minded in, in terms of the music that i that i listened to or was following because it was pretty much all what was on the radio at that at that particular time and this is Listening to bands like this kind of make you go back and, and listen to their previous stuff. Oh, I I would agree. I it's it's uh, kind of interesting how if you just give it enough time, sometimes those artists that are really talented can survive as long as they can persevere and kind of withstand the blows that they take. Maybe if they have the financial resources to go undercover for a while, mm -hmm. and then they can oftentimes make a comeback. Yeah. So that was my eighth artist. Uh, the Bee Gees, How Deep Is Your Love, and One from 1989. Number nine is somebody who was quite popular in the 1960s. I'm not sure if you will remember, uh, or maybe you thought about this guy, and this would be Aaron Neville. Something to play with, go and find yourself a toy. So this is young Aaron Neville, he's in his 20s at this point. Baby, my time is too expensive. And this is 1966. And he took and this I'm song to number two, and it's Tell It Like It Is. Right? If you are serious. Yeah, I remember Aaron Neville. And the Neville brothers being held in high regard as a kid. And yeah. I didn't always know why. But they would go on talk shows. They might go on, like, I'm throwing out sort of like a, the Mike Douglas show. Right. And he would come out and he'd sing. And I remember they'd make a big deal about him. Like, all right, I really don't know who he is. And yeah. he had this interesting look about him. He did. Yeah. I mean, he, was kind of, he looked kind of like a tough guy. Yeah, and he liked to dress the part. And, you know, he's... Kind of, you know, had like the scars and just, I remember he kind of had this intimidating look and then he had this very soft, soulful voice. He did. And he had 
his inflection, he could just, he was known as being able to dart, I wouldn't say like a yodel type voice, but he could he could go from one note to the next and, and drop notes and go up and raise and lower, kind of like nobody else. It was a very unique sound. And I had heard of this song, but, you know, we're rolling into 1989. Aaron Neville is not on my radar, nor is the artist that he ends up doing this next song with, which to me, it's kind of like a comeback for both of them. But in 1989, uh, you know, one of the biggest artists of the 1970s was Linda Ronstadt. And she was just all over the place. And then she, in the 1980s, she decided to branch out into other areas. She started, she did some classical music. She did, she sang in uh, a Spanish. She did a Spanish album. But more or less, she was doing stuff that wasn't chart ready. Right. Well, then she decides to come out with this album, and all of a sudden, you know, you're coming into the fall of 1989, and you're coming out of big happy music, and now you have this very sincere love song. I know the years are showing. Look at this life. I still don't know where it's going. I don't know much But I know I love you And that may be all I need to know So this this was not only a comeback, but it was kind of a resurrection. Because like you said, when Aaron Neville used to come out with his brothers, uh, Aaron Neville, again, much like Natalie Cole, really fell off the deep end in terms of drug abuse sure and it took him a long time to get himself he was in his i think at this point he's probably 45 or 46 when he would make those appearances he looked like somebody that you might buy drugs from out on the street he was he was a tough looking guy he lived a very hard yeah. life and you know one of the things that the neville brothers were known for was singing gospel songs so he was a man of faith and one thing that when he finally did clean his act up, one thing that I remember reading that he said was, you know, as hard and as much as I abused my body, God never took my voice away from me. And he could always sing. And he proves it here in this song, in this album. And he ends up coming out with a solo album after this and did a recreation of Everybody Plays the Fool, which ended up being a pretty big hit for sure, him. Sure, I remember that. So Aaron Neville went from absolutely, you know, was was a huge deal in the 60s, really falls off the, the earth, and then comes back and ends up having a career, you know, some 20, 25 years later. It's interesting the approach you took uh, going with Aaron Neville because I consider Linda Ronstadt. I considered her as well. Uh, but to me, I think Aaron Neville represents the story of greater redemption sure. because Linda had she like I said she took probably eight or nine years off with this particular album but she was still a working artist and a successful one right she didn't really go, yeah she didn't really go away right um, but Aaron Neville I mean this, this guy was done over and done oh, with absolutely and somehow was able to somehow get his career back so that is my number nine artist of uh, comeback musicians well how about we go to number 10 and this is one I, you may you may uh have this particular person on on your list i chose to go with a different song off the same album this is bad out of hell and this is meatloaf This is my favorite Beatles song, really. Yeah. It, I, I think Paradise by the Dashboard Light still probably, but I like this one a lot. You can almost like see him standing on the stage, pointing at the crowd, being very theatric. And that's that's how he made his career. Yeah. The thing I like about the whole album, and I you know I bought ended up buying the whole uh, downloading the whole album is how much energy is in this thing. 
I mean, I can imagine how it sounds live, let alone in a recording. Because on a recording, it sounds like it's got a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Meatloaf, Meatloaf struggles to, to to get back the success of this album, and I think maybe the one thing that probably hurt him the most is that the radio stations were so reluctant to play his songs because they were so long. Remember back in the day, there was this whole thing about, and it, it, Billy Joel even uh, sang about it in one of his songs, you know, uh, I got to keep it under 329. Right. Because if it was over 330, the, the records, records wouldn't get played on the radio. Because I've heard of artists, if they had a song that was over 330, still putting 329 on the 45. Right. Because they said, well, no one's going to time it. And if, if it's over that, they're going to throw it in the trash. Yeah, and for for a guy like Meatloaf, he didn't write his own songs. Nope, Jim Steinman. Jim, Jim Steinman did all the all the uh, the arranging, the producing, and they sort of had a falling out. They had a falling out in the 1980s. The Bonnie Tyler had a song, "Total Eclipse of the Heart," that became a number one song that was originally written for Meatloaf. Correct. But because Jim Steinman and Meatloaf were were at odds, Steinman gave it to Bonnie Tyler. So, uh, have, being an artist that relied on somebody to give him material. Didn't help, especially the guy who kind of had knew how to find Meatloaf's voice in music was Jim Steinman, and he wasn't able to find it through anybody else. So yeah, it's interesting you, you you talk about Jim Steinman and Meatloaf, where they had this this uh, kind of an arrangement where it was this perfect relationship where you know Jim Steinman had a certain sound, and not everyone could sing it. Very few. Mm-hmm. I mean, Meatloaf was the only one that really was able to, and Bonnie Tyler too. But the one, you know, to kind of get what he was trying to get put across, you know, he was brought in to be the producer for Def Leppard for what became a hysteria. He was, yeah, that's right. And they ended up letting him go. That's true. And they, I guess it was quite expensive for them to buy him out just because it did not mesh. And so it's not that Steinman or any producer is going to automatically work with any artist. Right. That's That's a good point. Yeah. And so about 15 years... Uh, goes by and Meatloaf and Steinman start communicating again. And then they decide to come out with this other album, which ends up becoming Bad Out of Hell 2. So, uh, you know, Steinman had been been continuing to produce and songwrite uh, for other artists during this time. But for Meatloaf, this is, this is a huge comeback for him. And this comes out in 1993. And it ends up going to number one, which ends up it's his only number one hit song that he ever had in his career. And the, again, this is where the imagery of a music video kind of enhances the, the song itself. And it's, Milo, you could always say he's theatrical. And this video is certainly theatrical. Sure. Sure. I mean, they, it, it was one of those, you know, many instances where you would have where the music video and the music were just a perfect match for each other. So it captured kind of his stage act in a way. It did. And as we said in previous episodes, he wasn't a great-looking guy. No. But he didn't let that hold him back, and that kind of is what they're going for in this music video. It's a Beauty and the Beast, sure. uh, you know, storyline. And that's such a... what We just heard that transition right there. That's so Jim Steinman. Oh, yeah. And just listening to the piano in the back. Yeah. They said that Steinman... When he used to play on stage, he used to bang the keys so hard, he would literally cut his fingers. And he thought it was so cool because he's got blood dripping everywhere. And for him, it was part of the show. Yeah. And he used to like get so excited when his hands would, would bleed. It's kind of like you know the wrestler that like puts a little nick yeah. so that when they get hit, they just open up and they bleed. But that was just so Jim Stein. It was all about the presentation. But this song ends up going to to uh, number one in 1993 and just relaunches, reboots Meatloaf from total obscurity. Very much so. He, um, he, yeah, and, and he also, I mean, he stuck around a little bit as an actor. He did because he was, he was in uh, Fight Club. He was in Fight Club and he was also in, um, he was in Wayne's World. He was the bodyguard, the security, the security okay. guy outside in Wayne's World. Okay. Where he's, where they came and asked him which bands were playing and, he gives them the names of the bands. Uh, so that was Meatloaf. That was like his little cameo okay. appearance. So, um, but yeah, he was able to to come from 
you know, total obscurity and, and re have a career again. That was my 10th artist. My 11th artist is, uh, Carlos Santana. So the song I'm going to play, <laughs> probably my favorite Santana song. See, this is where you and I were very, very similar. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was, uh, I went down the Carlos Santana road there for a while. No, this, this, this didn't make the cut because it was it was 1980. That's this was this was actually 79 uh, ish, 76. This, yeah, okay. I was surprised to see and that, and I was wrong. It should have been in. I loved this song when I was a kid. And when you and when you think about a Carlos Santana song, you always think of extended guitar riffs, solos. This one, he he kind of holds back a little bit. But he was certainly known for his guitar playing. And from Woodstock in 69 until, you know, this time in the mid-70s, he's got a big, very big career, uh, you know, very popular artist who kind of fades away after this is more or less the height of his career at, at that particular time. I always thought this was a great song. I enjoyed this song, too. And right now, you, it's, you're not hearing a lot of Carlos. Right. So, like, like... I forget the name of that song. Oh yeah, whatever it is. That that's a great. That's a really good song. And but he's more much more prominent in that sure. song. Yeah. But this song ends up going uh, number seventeen. Uh, so it doesn't even go in the top ten. But Carlos Santana's music wasn't necessarily going to get you into the top ten. It wasn't usually about charting. It was. Right. I mean, it was album sales and concerts. Right. Correct. So fast forward now, we're in, in the mid to late 70s. Now we're at the end of the decade in the late 90s. And again, that name, Clive Davis, comes out. And maybe because he had some success was you know in the 80s, the Aretha Franklins of the world. I know he had gone back and done work with Cher. So he goes back to Carlos Santana and is like, I have an idea for you. So instead of him having Santana put together a band they decide to come out with this album, Supernatural, where he's jamming with the other bands. And it's kind of brilliant, if you think about it. It's like, it, it kind of puts a spin on a variation because he is not a guy who sings. He's not a lead singer. He's a guitar player. Correct. But a lot of times you'll bring the lead singer in to sing with Carlos's band. Meanwhile, you have Carlos and Supernatural performing with these other bands so it gives each song a very unique sound to it, and I thought that was I thought that was so cool. And probably the 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 song that jump started the whole album is the song that he does with Rob Thomas, and this is called Smooth. And he's all over, Santana's all over this song. Oh yeah. What year was this? 1999. Yeah, I, I do remember this being humongous. And it was at a time where, for me, I really enjoyed what was happening in music. I had really come back to pop music, probably from, oh, from 97 on for a while, very strong. And, you know, I really liked what was happening and and this you know once again another song that kind of sounds of what was happening at the time yes but still very much Carlos Santana yes still very much something that maybe it's a little more polished than what you heard in the 60s and 70s well you kind of you kind of hear that mix that mesh between you know the guitar of, of Carlos Santana but yet it still kind of has a matchbox 20 yeah sort of sound to it it's a little i want to say tighter cuz Carlos is a tight player but sometimes when you do those jams and you know he was all about the you know the the kind of improv jam that he's just going to go off and be Carlos Santana where here it's it is contained in a much more tighter pop song and this album supernatural goes on basically become album of the year sure uh, song of the year he wins pretty much every major award that you could possibly win this in 1999 this was the biggest album in america if yeah. not the world oh I, I would agree so uh you know big comeback there for carlos santana guy who had a, had a you know really strong career for a good first 10 years and then so again sort of disappeared and, and had a great comeback
All right. So that was number my 11th artist. My 12th artist is somebody who was absolutely huge in the in the 1970s. He may be on your list. No. No? No. Actually, yes. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 yes. Yeah. He is on the list. This is Donny Osmond. No, I, it was... I, I thought you were probably going to put it on the list. So it's it, it it's queued up on my playlist, but I figured I wasn't going to get to it. Okay. I, the question was... Which song you're going to play for the original hit? And we picked the same song. Well, maybe. Probably. Um, so this came but out. I mean, as far as th- this was the song that I picked, as far as his his hit from the 70s. So this went to number three in 1972. And it's a song that our sister, Lori, loved, had the album, and I remember hearing it played a lot coming from her room. Yeah, and I don't know. Do you think it was done intentionally because... Donnie does a song, he's 15. Does he sound 15 or does he sound a lot younger? To you? Younger. He sounds a lot younger. Yeah. He doesn't even, sound like he's hit puberty yet. Even the picture on the uh, on the album cover, he just looks like he's about 11 or 12 he years does, old. He does, yeah. And it's interest, I, I found it interesting that you know, this, this song came out in, uh, in 1973. I'm sorry, 1972. Little Sister Marie... It's just about to hit number one on the country charts with her song Paper Roses. So Donnie and Marie Osmond, even though they didn't have a TV show at that point, they were dominating the pop and the country music charts. I guess that's why they went into a little bit of country and a little bit of rock and roll. Though I wouldn't put this in the rock and roll category as far as the song goes, but still he was dominating top 40 music. He, he was, and so when when you he goes from this, you know, he's this... I don't even know if he's he's a teen idol at this point. He is, yeah. I he's, mean, he's a teen idol, but it's like little kids. Not, I mean, it's he is definitely uh, he was the Justin Bieber of his day when sure. when young Justin Bieber came out, mm-hmm. and I I would then when he and Marie have their variety show, then his popularity goes even higher. Yeah, you know, because now he's mainstream. I wasn't going to listen to Puppy Love. Okay, but yeah. I certainly was a big fan of Donnie. Uh, on that show but then he kind of disappears he does and it's not through a a lack of effort because he really was trying to get his career going but unfortunately kind of like the bgs there was a stigma attached to donny osmond he was too nice his teeth were too perfect i mean he as you had said in our other episode on variety shows you know donny marie were just legitimately nice people yeah and he wasn't an act so it's pretty hard to change and turn off the act when it's actually who you are. Yeah, and and much like the the Bee Gees, Donnie Marie were kind of the gold standard for variety shows in 1978, 1979. You know, TV, everything was kind of like had a disco theme to it. And I think they all just kind of got swept up in that whatever trash bag they were trying to, you know, the decade was trying to do to clean up the, going into the 80s. Mm-hmm. And Donnie Marie and the Bee Gees, they just kind of got tossed into the trash and and Donnie really struggled. I mean, you know, at least the Bee Gees were a little bit older, that they they had a little bit more success. I mean, Donnie, by the time this happens, I think he's like nineteen or twenty. Yeah. And what your career's over? Well, he's destined for an appearance or two on the Love Boat, and that True. that's about it. So you know, he ends up and very creatively. I, I really have to hand it to. There was a DJ. Um, I believe the first one was down in Tampa, Florida. Comes across this album that Donnie Osmond comes out, and he's like, I really like this song, but there's no way people will, will listen to it if, if I tell them it's Donnie Osmond. Exactly. So they come up with this called The Mystery Artist, and they're like, you'll know him, but we're not going to tell you who it is. Right. And they play the song Soldier of Love. Yeah. And lo and behold, it becomes a major hit in 1989. I remember the whole campaign, and I wanted to know who this was because I liked the song. And then to find out, holy cow, it's Donny <laughs> Osmond, and yeah. it just it opened the world to to Donny Osmond with the song "Soldier Love," which ends up going into the the top ten. So the song I'm playing is actually going to be. I never gave up. 
his follow-up to Soldier of Love. Are you not going to play Soldier of Love? No. I like this song a little better. And I, is this is Sacred actually, Emotion? This is Sacred Emotion. But it's not the... like the, It's the live version. Yeah. No lip syncing going on here, buddy. I think he actually did this concert about 10 years ago, so he's probably in his 50s when he's, when he's still singing like this. And he, he doesn't have the same voice from Puppy Love. No, he doesn't. No, I agree with you. I, I did like this song a little bit better than Soldier Love, but I knew who he was at that point. They, they came right. out with a video, and I think I saw the video before I, I would have heard uh, Sacred Emotion on the radio. But I don't know about you, and I don't know how my, our friends were. We didn't really discuss it, but I was happy to find out that he actually was able to get success sure. back. Sure. He didn't seem like he deserved to get pushed away. No. And especially uh, VH1 did their Behind the Music, and I watched it on Donny Osmond. And that was a really hard time for him. It's not that he struggled financially, but imagine it. You're 22 years old, and you're told that you're washed up. Yeah, your husband. It's like, wait a second. I just got married. I'm having kids. I'm done. I'm I'm a I'm a major television star. I'm a husband, and and the as as the storyline goes, he tried really hard to get himself back out there, and the industry was just like, no, we don't want you. And then finally, he records this album. He sort of makes friends with Peter Gabriel, and Peter Gabriel has a recording studio in uh, in England. So when Donnie does uh, "Soldier of Love" and uh, you know this particular album, he does it over in England. So it originally gets released over there before it comes over to the United States, and it didn't do very well. So he can certainly thank the DJ that found "Soldier of Love," and otherwise, that album would have gone on the trash heap with everything else too. So. Do you remember the uh, the show uh, that was on Fox called Parker Lewis Can't Lose? Absolutely, yeah. And they featured Donny Osmond in an episode because, I, like, the principal mm. was like this this had this crush from her childhood on Donny Osmond. That's true. And I kind of remember that show that he was starting to get a little momentum again. Yeah. That he it's it's like we fooled you into not dismissing him mm-hmm. because it's you know Soldier Love was such a good song. That in where, you know, hey, you said you liked it. Now you can't take it back. That's right. And so he comes out with the second song that's got just played for you. And now he's making appearances once again on television. And he's he's relevant on TV again. And he ends up going and becoming a, a stage actor. He was the lead character. He played Jacob in Joseph and the, or I'm not Jacob, Joseph, in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Mm-hmm. He did that on stage for a number of years. And... Uh, one of the reasons why I decided to play this version of Sacred Emotion is the fact that Donny Osmond was not a gimmick. Donny Osmond was you know, extremely talented as a singer. And like I said, this, this song that he sang, he's probably performing in his early 50s, and it, it shows that the guy was, was a talented singer. And that version is quite different from the uh, the recorded version. Yes. Well, I mean, as far as like tempo. and uh, It is. Still, still good, but you know. It uh, the the other version was much I would say more danceable. It had a little bit more swing to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So that was my twelfth uh, comeback artist. Number thirteen is somebody that we spoke about again in our variety show episode. Probably when you think about variety shows in the nineteen seventies. One's Donnie and Marie, the other's Cher, Sonny and Cher. And this is Cher and, and Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves sure. from 1972. She certainly, you know, compared to other artists that were coming out at that time, this album has pretty unique sound to it, wouldn't you, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, kind of has almost like that fiddlers on a roof sort of sound to it well it, it kind of reminds i guess you know singer songwriters were a big deal and there was a version of songwriting where people are telling a story like yeah. you know jim croce's telling a story about bad leroy brown and you know 
Dark Lady was a song that we played in our um, variety show or one of our other episodes. They're, she's telling a story through song. But man, is she talking? <laughs> There's a lot in here. And so, but it was it was definitely a different a different sound. Actually, to the, the episode you're thinking of is where we did the number ones for my birthday. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Dark Lady. Yeah, and then it was it was Believe. So, and, and the only reason I kind of point that out, Scott, is because I was thinking about today, I, as I, I was kind of like doing some prep, I was I remembered like some other things from other episodes, because right. we're kind of doing things from the 70s, and I'm like, what episode was that in? Because we have like um, 40 episodes or so up right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's quite a few. And so, you know, Cher is another one who kind of had the door slammed on her. I don't think she wanted to walk away. No, she didn't. I mean, she was she was kicked to the curb. And I, I remember I hadn't seen her for a long time. And that I was watching The Tonight Show back in the days with Johnny Carson. And it was probably early 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, before Cher has her comeback, both musically and as an actress. Mm-hmm. And she's just not around. And she came in and remember Johnny kind of introduced her as, you know, bringing her Vegas show. That's right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, now performing at Caesars. Yeah. 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 Uh, please welcome Cher. Yeah, exactly. And she came in, she did this song and dance and they had this big, you know, she had the, a bunch of dancers with her. And I can, and I remember it because there was this giant show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that was like the prop and they kind of were spinning it around on the stage. And, but it was a 100% Las Vegas show. Okay. And yeah, but that's was, what she had become. Well, and she did that when you go back and, and you see what she was doing and why she was doing, she wanted to raise her kids and she didn't want to have to constantly be on the road. And she felt, well, I'm a performer. I can't get away from that. What's the best thing that I could do? So she did these residencies mm-hmm. in Las Vegas so that she could be home every night with her family. And she was enough of a name from the show, the Sonny and Cher show where let's face it, you know, the, the family, well, back then they weren't families weren't going to Vegas as much, but still people, if they were going to go to Vegas and they wanted to take in a show, they knew the name. So she struggled with the, the musical career. Um, but I kind of remember the early eighties share in the, in the movies that she did. The first one being Silkwood. Okay. Uh, Silkwood was her and Meryl Streep and Kurt Russell where they played uh, at a nuclear power yeah, plant. Yeah, right. Okay, I remember okay. it now. Sure. And she got, she got a lot of critical acclaim for her for her role mm-hmm. in that movie. And then she comes out with Mask. Sure, she was, she was good Eric in that Stoltz, movie. She was very good in that movie. So she's a good actress. Sam Elliott was in that one. That's right. He played Gar. He was yep. pretty cool. That's right. And um, so, you know, I'm thinking of, of Cher as Cher the actress. So now... Uh, she releases this album in 1987, going into 1988. And all of a sudden, shares on the radio again. And it's like, you know what? <clears throat> t- I like this a lot. I liked it. I liked it a lot. I enjoyed, I yeah. enjoyed this version of Cher a lot. Absolutely. As far as her singing career, this is the era I like the best. So she, I think she finally found her voice. You know, you always have these artists that, and I, I remember them saying it about Lenny Kravitz. You know, Lenny Kravitz was trying to sing like other singers for a number of years, and then when he finally found his sound, then all of a sudden he became a superstar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was trying to sound like Jimi Hendrix. He was trying to sound, you know, he's like, he didn't he didn't know, find his voice yet. And I think for Cher, when the 80s took a turn, she wasn't going to do disco. Uh, and she... Wasn't going to do a hard rock, but she kind of found this in-between sound that was wildly successful at the time. And she hit it at the right moment, and this was a huge hit for her. It was, you know, and this was, as I'm kind of looking it up, because I want to see who, who wrote the song. Um, I don't know. Is this? It sounds like a Diane Warren song. I believe you're correct. Actually, so, no, I, I take it back. There's a Holly Knight. No, Lo- Laura Branigan. Uh, composed for Laura, no, it was composed for Laura Branigan by Michael Bolton. This is a I, Michael I do, Bolton that's right. song. I remember reading that Bolton wrote, wrote songs for her, and it, some uh, keyboardist named Mark Mangold that wrote that with him. But this, yeah, that's yeah, right. I, Bolton was writing hit songs for people because he he had this was right before his solo album comes out, Soul Provider, because he was in the what was the name of the band he's in Blackie. 
Blackjack? Blackjack, I think. I okay, think Blackjack. And so he he steps away from performing and starts writing songs for other well, people. Well, he had, he had a little bit of a solo career early MTV days. Okay. Uh, there's some, you know, I, I, I knew who he was. I remember seeing his videos, and then he... When he came back as kind of this crooner, I was like, Michael Bolton, the rocker, is is, is a crooner? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Cher was able to get some top songwriters writing songs for her, and now she's she's current again and ends up having a nice little run there. Mm-hmm. And then she goes away for a few years, and then at the end of the decade, she again gets a number one song with Believe. So, and then she has another couple of hit songs. Yeah. So Cher... Well, certainly credit her for being a survivor. She, and continue to act. I mean, we didn't even talk about Moonstruck. Where she won the Academy Award, yeah. Um, it, one of her... Right around that same time. Yeah. Yeah, so she was she was at the top of her game in 1987. So that was Cher. First one was Gypsy, Tramps, and Thieves. And the second one was I Found Someone. My final artist, uh, my final group, I'm going to actually play three songs. Because I think they actually had two comebacks. Okay. Okay. So the first one I'm going to play isn't from the beginning of the career. I would say this is probably the end of Act One, where you would arguably say that they are at sort of at the top of their game, and then they they kind of walk away from it. I think you sort of know where I'm getting with this, but this is uh, Hall of Notes. This is the Apollo medley. It is, yeah. yeah with what, David Ruffin and Eddie, Eddie Kendricks? Eddie Kendricks. And the reason that I uh, reason that I play this particular song is in John Oates' autobiography, he signals this moment, this concert, as the end of Act One for Hall and Oates. Sure, I, yes it was. They, they went away after this concert. Because this was so successful. And if you haven't listened to this performance, it's on YouTube, and I highly recommend that you do. It is worth the time. This little, this little medley here is over 16 minutes long, but you got four songs in it, and it, it just goes from one song to the next. The band is killer. Daryl Hall and John Oates, who started in doo-wop groups, show that they can sing with you know two of the best most famous performer you know motown performers mm-hmm. of all time and these guys were it it's such a high energy fun concert to watch when the the apollo theater closed down for repairs and renovations and reopened in 1985 this was the concert that opened it up so this was the very first concert in the brand new Apollo Theater, and it was Daryl Hall and John Oates. And what year was this? 1985. Okay. So they are at the, and, and John Oates writes in his autobiography, he says, concert's over, and it's such a hit, and everybody's just smiling and slapping each other on the back, and we sit down in the dressing room, and we look at each other, and we go, I guess that's it. <laughs> and they both had the same feeling. Really? Like, what do we do now? Uh, go out and do some more concerts and make <laughs> Scott and Sean High happy because they like seeing you come and play. So they end up they end up taking a break. They do come out with an album in the uh, in the late eighties uh, that had a hit song called "The Downtown Life," which was uh, "Missed Opportunity" was another one. But they were kind of you know smaller hit songs sure. that they had. Yeah. And they're a little so, more adult contemporary type songs. So now, uh, but you know, Daryl Hall is one of those guys that he's, he's such a feverish, you know, there are certain guys and, and Sean, you've talked about Nikki six, just there's such creative forces that they have to keep working, mm-hmm. you know, whether, whether they paint or whether they produce or whether they write. They're songs. like the brothers high. <laughs> I guess. We, we had this, this creative itch that we had to scratch with putting up this podcast for all our loyal listeners. And so Daryl Hall was, he never really stopped doing music. You know, John Oates would take more breaks than Daryl would. Daryl kind of had to always keep going. Sure. In, in which he created one of my favorite, my favorite shows, which is Live from Daryl's House, mm-hmm. which is great a show. great show. Um, but, you know, John was a little bit more reluctant. And then they, uh, so they kind of step away towards the end of the end of the decade. And, but they do come back with an album called Change of Season in 1990. And this is a song that kind of puts him back on the map. 
So this is the song So Close. Mm-hmm. And Daryl Hall, who at this point is in his mid-40s and still has one of the most incredible singing voices in music history, a guy who doesn't even have to warm up even in the 70s. Yeah. It's amazing. That's what they say. And he still hits these notes at the age of 76 today. And it's just, he's a, I guess you could consider him, you know, a freak of nature to, to a certain degree. But just one of the great soul, you know, blue-eyed soul voices of all time. And this this song and this album showed why they are still a force to be reckoned with. As much as I truly, truly love Hollow Notes in the early 80s, I mean, they, they were, you know, they, they were the band that probably was my favorite band from, you know, that took me from 5th, 6th, 7th grade. It, in that era my absolute favorite band well Private private Eyes yeah. I remember you had that on vinyl uh, absolutely and you know H2O and it's just phenomenal love that I had for the band they disappeared and they they went off my radar and I kind of wrote them off and then that song came out and I was I was like uh, dumbfounded when I heard that for the first time I was like that is one of the greatest songs I've ever heard yeah it's it's a terrific song and and it may not even be my favorite song on the album Don't Hold Back Your Love is uh, an incredible I, song I, I agree it, it's one of those songs like depending on what kind of mood you're in when you're listening to it it's like man it's, do the words hit you like a ton so of bricks so that's the difference between me hearing a song like uh, Kiss on My List when I am I don't know 11 yeah and loving it and thinking it's the greatest thing in the world and then having gone through life a little bit, and you know, as we all do, every one of you out there listening knows what I'm talking about. We all experience ups and downs, and you get life kicking you around a little bit. Sure. And then finally, and then now you're mature enough and and able to understand a song like Scott just played, and the lyrics kind of hit home, and it you can now relate. And even in the other song, uh, you know, he starts out the song with "I know what it's like to be forgotten." Yeah. I mean, what kid says that? <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? You're not 16. You're not thinking about that. Right. But adults sure do sometimes. Right. And uh, you know, what a what a great lead into to a song when your when your band's been gone for a number of years. I know what it's like to be forgotten. And they were they were 100 forgotten. I mean, I I, I mean, maybe the, there was a hardcore fan base that was still looking for them, but most of us had moved on. You know, Scott said earlier in this broadcast that back in this this era, things are coming up fast. And if you get off the train, it's going to keep running without you. And so as an artist, if you choose to step aside like, like Daryl and John did, you're committing career suicide. So it, it was almost in a way that they were proving to the world, hey, we can still hit the charts if we want to. Right. And then they take up another break. Uh, they, they continue to perform, but they're not really coming out with a ton of new music. They had one album that came out towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s. And they had a song that was called Promising Enough, which is one of my favorite uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates songs of all time. But then 2003 rolls around, and I know I'm stepping out of Gen X here, okay. but I feel that it's appropriate. I'll give, give, you, I'll give, give you a little leeway. Given, given the band. But they come out with this song in 2003, and it's my favorite song of that year. Sounds a little more mature. Absolutely. You know, he's, at this point, he's in his 50s. A little jazzy. A little bit of a jazzy sound to him. And I'm not ashamed just to love you into It's a song that you could even hear like a, a James Ingram sing. Sure, absolutely. 100%. It's got that vibe. Well, I, I was so fond of this song, I went on and got a physical copy when it came out. That's right. You got the, you got the, the compilation. Yeah, I got a compilation yeah. set. Well, I mean, it was because of this song that, that and I said, well, I, I have to, I'll buy the whole set. You know, I, it's hard for me to decipher, like, who my favorites are, if it's Daryl Hall and John Oates or Billy Joel. 
it's very close, but I've always, always loved both acts. And to me, I think the the Daryl Hall and John Oates story, Billy Joel's never stopped touring. Sure. Uh, and he has stopped making new music, but even when Daryl came out with his album Laughing Down Crying, which came out about four years ago, I have that album as well. And it's the guy is still making good music. And as I as I, I continue to say, good music is good music. And I don't think they're trying to go for it. Even though you kind of hear a little bit of a more modern sound, like I said, which shows how talented the Daryl Hall and Jonas band is, the musicians that they surround themselves with. But the fact is, I can hear Daryl Hall and Jonas bringing this, a song like this out in 1987 or maybe 1985. And I, I would probably say it's going right onto the charts, too. I, I would agree with that. And also, you know, the sound, I don't know that this is necessarily something that's going to be time-stamped, uh, which is kind of what you're saying, where when we heard some of those other songs, I would say, oh, that sounds 1985. Oh, that sounds 1989. This, I really can't put a feel on. There's like a 20-year period that this could have fallen into. Sure. And I think what happens, you know, with some great artists like, you know, Daryl and John, is they just mature as songwriters. And so it's not necessarily a sound that's going on at the time. It's just kind of where they are in their lives. Right. And, and watching the uh, behind the music on this, John said... You know, the, the song is a love song, but John really felt like when they were writing the lyrics to this, especially the chorus, a lot of it had to do with where they were at in their careers. Like, they didn't have to try and make a charitable song. Mm-hmm. And so he, he said when they were writing the chorus, it, it kind of resonated to where they were at in their careers. Like, I won't do it for money. I won't do it for money. I won't, I won't do, do it for fame because they're already famous. They're already rich. Yeah. So they, you know, for the love of the music is why they decided to come out with this particular song and as you can tell it's one of my favorites because we let it play the whole way through <laughs> yeah so that is my list um and i'm sticking to it so. all right that's i think that's that's a, a a darn good list and um i'm pleased that i think you only you only bumped three okay I, of, of I, my I, list. I told you i thought they we would probably have a different list and, and and like i said i i some of the ones that you had on there that i might have considered weren't on my list just because i you know like blondie I, it jumps out at me i mean i, I didn't really think a whole list because they didn't make my my 1980 cutoff and i definitely considered meatloaf but you know for the you know outside of a few like aaron neville never would have thought about okay but i i i think that the list that you put together would have been, um, I mean, would be a playlist that I would be happy to listen to. I, I like all the music that you put out there. Well, Sean, it's you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because if you are on Spotify.com, you can go into, uh, type in a playlist for the Comeback Kids, and you can listen to my song list in its entirety. And it was, um, so we bring Daryl Hall and John Oates back, but. You know, for me, it was kind of fun to to go through and and pull some of these comeback stories that are I don't know. I think they're good stories. They're kind of re- songs, uh, stories of redemption, especially when you hear when you read about people like Aaron Neville and Natalie Cole, and that they're able to kind of come back from the nowhere, and they're destitute and they're at the complete bottom, and now all of a sudden they're you know they're stars again. So right. it's, it's it's a good it's it's a good story. For uh, for anybody and uh, you know somebody like a survivor like I said like a share or Donny Osmond, people who just never gave up and were able to find success later on in life. It I, it it makes me happy to hear comeback stories like that. I, I think most people deep down like a good comeback story. Uh, it, it happens so rarely, especially in the music industry where it's it's such a cutthroat world and people really do want to throw you out after they have no more use for you. Sure. But to see people persevere and come back, it, it's, it's, it's something that's admirable. And I always like to say, well, folks, we're going to end part one of our conversation on comeback musicians. So we are the brothers. High. Thank you so much for listening to Gen X playback. We're going to let uh, Daryl Hall and John, take it out the rest of the way, but We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. We'll talk to you next time. See you.